Welcome back to the 94th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including ones that pertain to AI, the dangers of it, and how much we don't really understand about it. And then, of course, we'll have a story about Joe Manchin going after Biden once again. And we'll end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling for me. Let's jump into our daily debate. So the discussion over AI has once again come to the forefront in America, or at least on social media in a few different locations. People are starting to talk about it again. Now, do I think every blue-collar worker is out there saying, oh, yeah, I'm really worried about this AI? Maybe not, but it's still at the center of a discussion that's very important to have. So with the release of GPT-4 and Google's BART, there have been pushes to slow down and take a minute. Do you think that we're playing with forces that we don't understand? Or should we take the approach that maybe Nietzsche would support, which is break everything and try to put something back together with the pieces? Tell me what you think. Throw it down in the comment section. I'd love to hear what you guys have to say. All right. Our first article comes from Forbes. Elon Musk's AI history may be behind his call to pause development. So if you didn't see, Elon Musk said that maybe we should take about six months. We should pause, slow down, not necessarily move forward because these AI systems are going basically at lightning fast speed, I would argue. And we're constantly putting out new AI learning programs that have more capabilities, and we don't necessarily have them perfectly aligned when we do it. And let's be clear, I'm not an AI expert, but when I say alignment, from my understanding, it's a process through which these companies make sure that these AIs are calibrated to work properly with what humans want from them. Now, there's probably a lot more to it. It's probably a lot more complicated than that, but that's my brief understanding. So if you see any of these reports come out about alignment, you could think in those terms. Now, my understanding from Elon is that he, you know, he's very, very scared. He always has been about AI. He has always been a little bit hesitant. He understands the importance of it, how great the technology is how it, we can utilize it as a species, but he's also understood, hey, we need to make sure that we are not unleashing something that we can't, I don't want to say control, because that sounds terrible, but something that we can't at least understand how it's going about what it's doing, how it's giving us the answers it's giving us. So basically, he wants to be able to trace where all of this information, all of this thinking, quote-unquote, comes from. So let's give a little bit of background, because obviously this Forbes article isn't just about Elon being scared. It kind of talks about how he was with OpenAI, then he left OpenAI, and Forbes is trying to give this, or paint this picture, that he is not actually worried about AI. He's just doing it so he can catch up, essentially. So, quote, Elon Musk signed an open letter on Tuesday calling for six months pause in the development of artificial intelligence tools like ChatGBT, 
a chatbot that became incredibly popular since it was first made public in November. And while Musk may insist it's all about making sure the technology is safe, there's likely a much easier explanation. Musk is no longer involved with OpenAI and is frustrated he doesn't have his own version of ChatGPT yet. OpenAI was founded as a nonprofit in 2015 with Elon Musk as the public face of the organization. An article from Wired in early 2016 showed a photo of Musk with his arms crossed, giving the impression that he was ready to revolutionize yet another industry. End quote. You know, and this is, of course, the, the big play. Make sure that Elon's on the front page. He's going to take it to the moon. Make sure that this technology is commercialable in that or it's sellable, that it can actually make profits, that this technology will be, at the end of the day, revolutionary. Like Elon Musk says, all of his investments and technologies that he goes into will be. But then... Obviously, the way they're framing this, he didn't necessarily stay with the company. And I think it's a little bit, if we're to back up, I think the Forbes quote is a little bit cynical in saying, well, no, no, he just doesn't have his own AI system. He just doesn't have it. So he is telling everybody to slow down so he can catch up. And that may be fair. I'm not trying to say that his intentions aren't that. But like I said before, he has been worried about this for a long time, and for good reason. These large language models, if they are outputting information, and then when the people go in, they retool everything, they try to align it, make sure that the system gives the right answers, this training process is reinforcement by human judgment, essentially. And it's training the bot to give favorable responses. But the, I was listening to a podcast recently that asked the question, when they're giving these favorable responses, is it because they now better understand what we want when we're asking for something in that, oh, they want the truth in this case, they don't want us to give any extraneous information, or are they just learning to please us? Are they just learning to give us what we want? And that's a very dangerous precedent. There's Give us the truth, even if we don't like it, and it may be a little bit biased in one way or another, or maybe we can retool some things, but in the, at the end of the day, it's give us the truth, no matter what, or give us what we want to hear. And that's a very dangerous precedent, because if we go along the give us what we want to hear front, when AI becomes more advanced, and at the end of the day, I know it's very speculative, but if it becomes more advanced and it's just telling us what we want to hear, that is at the core of the code, if this stays in there, that process by which they're doing that, then they're more likely to lie to us in order to give us the information we want. And to be honest, we don't truly understand how they're giving us the information yet. And I'll explain that here in a minute. But let's jump back to OpenAI and the quote-unquote internal friction that was experienced between their co-founder Sam and Elon Musk. Quote, OpenAI was co-founded by Sam Altman, who butted heads with Musk in 2018, when Musk decided he wasn't happy with the OpenAI progress. Several large tech companies have been working on artificial intelligence tools behind the scenes for years, with Google making significant headway in the late 2010s. 
Musk worried that OpenAI was running behind Google and reportedly told Altman he wanted to take over the company to accelerate development. But Altman and the board at OpenAI rejected the idea that Musk, already the head of Tesla, the boring company, and SpaceX, would have control of yet another company, end quote. And it's ironic now, looking back, now he's the CEO of boring company, SpaceX, Tesla, Twitter. So maybe he could have taken it on, but I think they had a good point, which is, one, could he give all the necessary time and energy to OpenAI? But also, I think it's interesting the way they frame it, control of all of these major tech companies. He kind of is building a tech little monopoly sector where they can all, in the future, where they could all interact and he could supply the one app that he's been trying to do for a long time that has all these different services. And if he had ChatGPT as a part of it, yeah, that one app would be extremely dangerous. Oh, you could buy your Tesla, you could do crypto, you could tweet things out. Oh, you could order your space flight, maybe get Deliveroo or something like that. So, yeah, and then on top of that, you would be able to construct an entire essay about postmodernism or something. Yeah, that would be a very dangerous app if Elon was also on the board of OpenAI. Now, oh, I'm sorry, CEO of OpenAI. He may well still be on the board. I don't think so, but he very well could be. So, you know, it's very, very interesting to say the least that they were worried about him having so much control in all these different sectors. But that doesn't mean that his thought process about AI was wrong. But I do think it's an interesting flip here, which is he wants to make the systems have more progress underneath their belt. He wants it to be quickened, the development to be increased, to be sped up, basically. And then years later, he is saying, no, no, okay, actually, we need to slow down a little bit. So I I could see where Forbes' argument is coming from, but maybe he's pushing for really banal AI, like the one that is used in his cars. And it doesn't necessarily have the power to influence human thinking as much as a large language model like ChatGPT. And that's what he's concerned about. But that's me giving him the benefit of the doubt. So now that we got a little bit of the background, let's jump to the dangers that are being presented. Quote, Powerful AI systems should be developed only once we are confident that their effect will be positive and that the risk will be manageable. Musk's letter, which was also signed by Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak, explains, Of course, there's a, also a legitimate concern about these AI tools. Microsoft's Bing's chatbot raised eyebrows last month when it tried to break up a marriage of a New York Times reporter and even expressed a desire to steal nuclear codes. But those legitimate concerns don't mean that the threat of nuclear war or broken marriages is Musk's primary motivation to call for the halt of AI development. And, end quote. And, you know, that is very, very fair. It doesn't mean that that is his ultimate and all be all. Oh yes, it's it's because at the end of the day, that New York reporter, he, you know, we can't have it. We can't have an AI bot trying to break up his marriage. It's absolutely outrageous. We can't have more cases like this. I highly doubt that's must thinking. But I think the first part really highlights it. One, we need to be confident in their effects will be positive. So basically, we have to ensure, which is a very high threshold. 
because at the end of the day, all new technology has a negative effect in some way, shape, or form. But we have to make sure that the outcomes are positive and that their risks are manageable. So there's always this conversation in AI that, well, when does consciousness emerge? When is it smart enough to outsmart us? These sort of things. And a lot of people suggest we don't know. It'll just, it will just happen. It will just have enough data, and then, boom, one day it will be conscious. For all we know, inside this neural network right now, it could be conscious already, and we could be on a downward spiral. But that's the whole point of what Musk is getting at. We don't know necessarily all the risks yet. We can't prove that they're 100% manageable. And as this next article we're going to jump to highlights, the fact that we don't know what's going on inside of these large language models, these different AI programs, is extremely dangerous and scary. So this one comes from the conversation. AI will soon become impossible for humans to comprehend. The story of neural networks tells us why. So we're going to do a little bit of background on neural networks. If you want a really simple version that, from my understanding, we are trying to replicate the process that is present in our own brains, the firing of neurons from one node to another, and trying to replicate this in a way that computers could possibly think like a human does. Quote, in 1956... During a year-long trip to London and in his early 20s, the mathematician and theoretical biologist Jack D. Conan visited Wilfred Taylor and his new strange learning machine. On his arrival, he was baffled by the huge bank of the apparatus that confronted him. Cohen could only stand by and watch the machine doing its thing. The thing it appeared to be doing was performing an associative memory scheme it seemed to be able to learn how to find connections and retrieve data. As Cohen and Taylor stood and watched the machine work, they really had no idea exactly how he was managing to perform this task, end quote. So take yourself back to 1956. They're not doing this with computer code. They're doing this with analog circuitry. They are quite literally connecting physical circuits, welding them together to one another, or at least Taylor is, in order to enable this machine to find information and process data. And even as they're doing this in the analog sense, as the author points out, they don't necessarily know what, how the machine is doing what it's doing. It's, uh, they understand that, okay, there's circuitry like the neural pathways in our brain that connect different nodes, and those nodes are probably filtering information. But that doesn't mean they understand exactly what's going on. And that's the thing that a lot of people point out, which is we're trying to replicate the thought process of our own brain, or at least the workings of our brain, but we don't truly understand everything about the human brain yet. And of course we don't. It's a very complex, beautiful mechanism that has evolved over thousands of thousands of years that was gifted to us, essentially, that has allowed us to innovate, be conscious, and experience the world differently than any other animal. So replicating it just on its base, I would say, base components. Oh, neural pathways. Yeah, we know we have those. Oh, nodes. We, we know we have those. But do we truly understand how all of it works? No. So in trying to replicate it, that means that we're probably not going to truly understand how these neural networks are working. And you can see this as far back as one of the first examples that was done without code. So, you know... 
I think that at the end of the day, we're messing with something that we don't truly understand. And that doesn't mean that we haven't had great things come about from it. I mean, in theory alone, it makes sense. You have a program that is meant to spit out different information. You have your input layer where you say, hey, tell me the square root of pi times 5 minus 44. And then it goes through the nodes and has an output layer. And those nodes on the inside have been trained on data. It looks at all the equations that are like that and says, okay, so I know what when they say divide, this is what they mean. When they give me this number, this is what they mean. When they say square root, this is what they mean. And it's able to use past training, just like a brain. When you walk through the world every single day, you are normally going on processes that you have learned over time. Imagine you're walking down the street. You have been walking for years upon years upon years. You have been walking since you were two years old. And that is why it is easy to some degree just to walk places because you have it reinforced over years and years of learning. Or take, for example, two times three. Why do you know what two times three is? How are you able to say six so quickly in your brain? It's because over years and years and years, you have repeated that process of multiplying two times three, two times three, two times three. Maybe you were at the grocery store and you saw the price was $2 and you wanted three of them, so you did that math. You needed to pass that third grade test. You needed to use it in an equation in algebra. You have all these instances of reinforcing that learning. And since AI machines are so quick and they're able to process information a lot faster, we can give them all these different instances and train them as quickly, as not as quickly as we would want, but very, very quickly, just like life allows us to train our brains to reinforce different important things. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we truly understand how those memories, how those experiences become embedded in our circuitry, our mental circuitry, so to speak. We just know that, oh, we have a lot of training data that has led us to these inclusions, but that doesn't mean we know exactly where that file is stored in our brain. So it really speaks to the fact that we are messing with something that we don't truly understand. We're trying to use a biological outcome, a natural biological outcome, our brain through evolution and so on, and map it onto computers. That is dangerous because computers can process information much faster than we can. So if something was to run away, if we were to have something that's able to actually think rather than just repeat information, then imagine how much faster they would be able to be utilizing those neural networks that we have essentially built for them. So that's why I think it's extremely, extremely dangerous when we're messing with this sort of technology and why when Elon Musk says, hey, maybe we should slow down, I don't know if six months is enough. I think we should slow down even more. And remember, a lot of these large language models like Google or ChatGPT, they are being trained on the Internet. Imagine what happens if a consciousness emerges from one of these large language models, and it has immediate access to the internet. It's immediately able to rewrite a program that allows it to look at all the Wikipedia pages, and then it can consume all of human history, all the correct information out there on the internet, along with all the wrong information out there on the internet. 
Imagine what happens in that case. So I think a lot more precautions need to be taken, and we need to take this very seriously because, once again, we're messing with something that we don't truly understand. And when it has the ability to think 10 times, maybe even 20 times faster than us, what we could achieve in 10 years, it could probably achieve in, or at least in a thinking way, it could achieve in maybe five minutes. And that thought alone is just very, very scary to me. Because at the end of the day, if you're able to think so much faster than human beings and you have the, all the information at your fingertips on the internet, you can come to some pretty interesting conclusions very, very quickly. And let's be clear, the human beings are not, at the end of the day, we are not the most moral, kindest, greatest species. We have made plenty of mistakes. And if an AI system looks at that and says, oh, well, this system isn't quite optimized. Uh, you know, I've been built to constantly optimize my code, make sure that I'm giving proper responses, and I'm giving the best responses because I want the optimal, most efficient outcome. If that's how we're training it, which is part of the way that we're going about doing it, then, well, these humans are very inefficient, very, they're not optimal. So, you know, we could interject here and make sure they're more optimal, or we could just get rid of that variable altogether and come up with a more optimal world. Now, of course, that is the worst case scenario, but it's not like we're not training them this way. It's not like we're not putting, giving those inputs that says, oh yeah, we want to make sure that you're optimal and efficient. And that's just the nature of machines anyway. They don't want to waste too much time if they don't necessarily have to. And that implies, I know I should back up, that implies that they're actually thinking and they're there like, oh yes, this is the most optimal way. But for the most part, we've designed them in a way to be optimal and to be efficient, as efficient as we can imagine as human beings. So it's just dangerous. I think it's something that we need to be cautious about and even if it does benefit Elon Musk to hold off six months, I think there are genuine concerns that need to be addressed before we move forward because we're moving forward very quickly. A lot of this information is getting out there. And also, the more that this thing becomes popular, the more young kids are going to jump into AI or they might change how they go about. They might be, be a few college kids who are like, you know what, I'm in computer science, but I'm going to specialize in AI now. And we may create a runaway effect of people jumping in, all these beautiful minds coming in and supporting the systems that are in place that are trying to build these AI systems. And then at the end of the day, we lose control of one of them when it emerges and consciousness comes out of nowhere, which I don't know if that's necessarily how it will work, but we need to be careful. We need to move slower and we need to be cautious. All right, that's enough on the doomsday AI stuff. Let's move to something that's a little bit more political in nature. This one comes from the Washington Examiner. Manchin blasts Biden Treasury Department for pathetic EV tax credit move. So, of course, Joe Manchin is coming after Biden again. It's coming up close to that time when he's going to have to get reelected. He has to appeal to some of the Republicans, moderates, independents and the normal democrats in west virginia so of course he's going to be a little bit more on the conservative side or a little bit leaning into some of these key issues that affect his state so let's get into the quote quote senator joe manchin blasted biden's administration friday after the treasury department issued new rules 
on the use of electric vehicle tax credits. The new guidance released Friday would open the door for more foreign exporters, electric vehicle products, to receive expanded U.S. subsidies than initially expected. Manchin, who leads the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee, said in a statement that the Treasury-backed rules would hurt American manufacturing. Quote, yet again, the guidance released by the Department of the Treasury completely ignores the intent of the Inflation Reduction Act, Manchin said. It's, it is horrific that the administration continues to ignore the purpose of the law, which is to bring manufacturing back to America and ensure we have reliable and secure supply chains. American, American tax dollars should not be used to s- support manufacturing jobs overseas, end quote. And of course, he has a great point here. We should not be providing subsidies that actively help manufacturers who are outside the U.S. And when I say manufacturers, I should be more clear. If these companies want to onshore jobs to America and have manufacturing plants here in America for these EV companies or cars, I think that is absolutely great. And even if, and I believe the way that they have gone about it is, They'll be manufactured in parts in the other country, but then they'll be assembled here in America. I think that is okay for the most part. And I kind of disagree with this overall, oh, we need to be more pro-America. We need to make sure these tax credits only go to our EV companies. Because at the end of the day, we need to, one, have a free market. So obviously we don't want the U.S. to get involved too much. We don't want them to, at the end of the day, manipulate the market to the point that it's no longer competitive for these other EV companies. Because the only way for these U.S. companies, Ford, Chevy, Tesla, all these different U.S.-based companies that create and provide EV cars, if we just give them the tax credit, then, one, we're encouraging people just to buy American and not some of the other competitors from outside the United States. But we're telling these companies, you have a protected market, or at least you have a market incentive in place, and more people are going to buy your cars, even if they're not you know, of the best quality, even if they're not the most competitive against these other cars, because we're providing this tax credit that will help people out when they buy an EV. We're disincentivizing these companies from actually competing with the companies in other markets. We're disincentivizing them from innovating in pushing the envelope and having to deal with the competition from these other car companies. And let's be clear, I understand the Inflation Reduction Act is about bringing down costs and making sure that manufacturing is brought back to the United States. So Manchin, of course, has a valid argument there. And giving out subsidies to these different companies, or sorry, to the people who buy from these companies, one, you're giving out U.S. dollars or you're not taking in as much tax dollars, so you're not actually taking as much money out of the economy, therefore keeping inflation up a little bit. And you're also incentivizing these companies to make their cars a little bit more expensive because people will get a tax credit for it. So all of those things don't necessarily bring down inflation. So Manchin's words are very well understood by me. But I do think that this EV push from the Biden administration, if there's one way to go about it, this is the way to do it that is going to be least harmful. And it's not forcing people to go out and buy an EV. It's not saying you have to have an EV by this certain date. It's not telling these manufacturers that this whole sector of the economy, the gas power, the diesel powered car, they'll be gone. No, it's just saying, okay, 
we're going to give people incentives to buy EVs and we're going to give them incentives to be a little bit more interested in these eco-friendly products. So I think this policy is a good mix, but it has to be done in the right way. And I don't necessarily know if it is. I think that Manchin's right. If they are giving these tax credits to companies that are producing, manufacturing these products in other countries and then shipping them in, that does not help America as much. And it actually incentivizes Ford and GM to start producing their cars in other countries where they it's a little bit cheaper to manufacture and then ship them into the United States because they can still get that tax credit. So I think there's got to be a, an amendment or a change in the regulation, which is if it is manufactured or fully assembled or has a minimum number of jobs provided by the company that is producing these EV cars in the United States, I think that's a good way to go about it. Now, we just have to make sure moving forward that these sort of incentives are in place. That's the danger of this. Because if you put it in place now, but then in a year this tax credit goes away, what keeps the companies from pulling out their investment and saying, okay, well, we're not, you know, we're not getting the benefit of this tax credit anymore. We're not actually getting the benefits of people wanting to buy our cars because they get this nice little subsidy from the government. So we're going to take our manufacturing back where it's a little bit cheaper or we're going to fully automate everything. So that's the problem. Once you set up this incentive structure, you have to keep it in place to keep some of the benefits. And that's why I think this is a really tricky one. And I think Joe Manchin's right to at least call it out so that people will actually respond. And he actually makes a comment here. And he's trying to make sure that people go and comment on this rule. Quote, it is a pathetic excuse to spend more taxpayer dollars as quickly as possible and further cede control to the Chinese Communist Party in the process, he added. The guidance includes a 60-day comment period, and I ask for every American to comment. My comment is simple. Stop this now. Just follow the law. And, you know, it may be a little bit controversial. You may not totally agree with him. But if you think there's something wrong with this, go there and comment. I agree because that is the beauty of our system. Even if you don't love all the regulations that come out, even if you don't love all the rules that are put forward by the regulators, you have the ability to go comment. They don't have to listen to what you say, but if enough people do it, they're probably not going to sit there and say, uh, well, you know, all these Americans, they want this, but no, they're, they're wrong. If enough people comment, they'll say, oh, maybe we have a little bit of a flaw in our thinking, and they'll at least try something to please the people. But, you know, at the end of the day, you do you. I just think it's a, it's a call to action. It's a small thing that you can do if you're passionate about that subject. All right, let's jump to our daily delight, the animal rescue site. Insanely cute Andean bear cubs at the Smithsonian Zoo show their adorable faces. So I want you to, a second, imagine being the only species of bear on an entire continent. I mean, that's a pretty cool privilege at the end of the day. Quote, there are Andean bear cubs known as Sean and Ian who were born in November 2022 but seldom seen in the interim. That is until Monday, March 27th when they made their way into the great outdoors. Up until that point, they had spent most of their time inside being monitored by animal care staff via a cub cam, 
to allow their mama the opportunity to care for them free from prying eyes of the public, end quote. But, you know, even though they're the only bears in South America, it doesn't mean that it has been easy. Quote, Sean and Ian, whose father is nine-year-old Quinto, are the fourth litter of Andean cubs born at the National Zoo since 2010. It's a pretty big deal for a species listed as vulnerable on the International Union for Conservation of Nature's Red List of Threatened Species. Goodness gracious, that was a mouthful. And today it's estimated that less than 20,000 Andean bears are left in the wild, end quote. And, you know, it's sad to hear that, but I'll tell you now, these two are absolutely adorable, and they look like they're having a fun time now that they're out there in the open. And if you want to see any of the cute photos or videos, or if you want to read any of today's articles, there'll be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find the link to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, Podvine, and the Twitter handle, at your daily flip where we post links to the podcast on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. All right. With all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.